Nau mai, haere mai, kia ora tato, and welcome to the fifth episode in the Auckland Writers Festival Winter Series. Ko Paula Morris, toko ingoa, my name is Paula Morris, and I'm speaking to you from my dining table in Grays Avenue, Auckland. Thank you to our generous technical partner, Auckland Live, and to Copyright Licensing New Zealand for their support in making this series possible. Remember, everyone, this series is free to view. So if anyone asks you for credit card information, ignore them, for they are mischief makers. And focus your attention instead on today's stellar lineup of writers. You are very welcome to make comments or ask questions throughout the episode. Just use the chat functions on Facebook and YouTube. I'll try to include your questions if we have time. However, do not click on any links in the comments unless those links are supplied by the Auckland Writers' Festival, we live in strange times. <laughs> uh, one final reminder, the writers' books we're discussing today are available for sale or order. Just click on the buy the book link in the episode description. Now, as ever today, we have a packed program. In this hour, I'll chat with each of our writers about their latest book. We'll hear a short reading. And towards the end of the episode, all three writers will return for a final question or two. So let's welcome our guests. Joining us from Maine in the US, Richard Ford. Glad to be here. What a, what a treat for me. After a lock, lockdown for two and a half months to get to virtually be in New Zealand is uh, more than I hoped for. Thanks, Richard. Representing my own native land, West Auckland, Amy McDade. Kia ora, Paula. Thank you so much for having me today. Kia ora, Amy. And joining us from North London, Yasmin Khan. Hi, I'm so gutted I couldn't be there at the festival, but it's just so wonderful to have these online events where we can engage with readers and, yeah, get to chat between ourselves. Absolutely. So kia ora and welcome to you all. Now, Amy and Yasmin, please don't go too far. As discussed, you can go a little bit crazy in your own homes, but... Uh, <laughs> but don't go away, don't wander too far. I'm going to talk first of all today to Richard Ford, the acclaimed American novelist and short story writer. Many of you will know him from the trilogy of novels published over 20 years about the character Frank Bascom, described by the New York Times as one of the more essential stories in contemporary American fiction. The sports writer, Independence Day, and Lay of the Land, with a coda in the novellas of Let Me Be Frank With You. In 2018, Richard was in Hamburg to receive the Siegfried Lentz Prize for his body of work and said, I come from Mississippi, a land of writers. This is true. Not only was he born in Jackson, the street where Eudora Welty once lived. Unlike Welty, Richard didn't stay in Jackson. The son of a traveling salesman, he's been described as a lone wolf. He has studied or worked in cities and small towns all over the U.S., from St. Louis to New York, from California to Montana, from New Orleans to Michigan, to coastal New England, and Richard's work ranges as well, roaming as he roams, a truly American body of work. His story collections include Rock Springs and A Multitude of Sins, as well as the book we're discussing today, a brilliant new collection of 10 enticing, resonant stories, Sorry for Your Trouble. As we'd expect, they too range in time and place. Many explore what one story calls adults with dense lives behind them, divorcees and widowers, parents of far-flung grown children and gone or going parents, making decisions about where they live and who they can no longer be. Reviews have praised 
writing full of the most marvellous gems, absolute truths that linger long after finishing the stories. Richard Tenakwe, hello and welcome. Hello. Great to see you, Paula. It's a real pleasure. It's lovely to see you. Now, a number of stories in this collection have Irish characters. And one story, in fact, with Saturn Islands, where you've had an association with Trinity College for some years. And I know your father's side of the family is Irish, but you said, it's not that I feel at home, identify is not what I do. I just don't feel out of place. And I wondered, what's it like for you as a place to write and a place to write about? Well, I never have tried to write a word in Ireland. Um, I'm that smart because I I think probably living in Ireland would completely uh, denature any natural voice that I might have. I would end up writing some amalgam of Irish, English, and I don't want to do that. I, it takes me, it's taken me long enough, 76 years, to be able to write a sentence that I can believe in. So uh, to have to suddenly write through the scrim of Ireland would be would be difficult. But but to write stories that are inflected by Ireland, that's that's a very different matter. Um, the, the stories in this book are not about uh, trying to get to the heart of Ireland or trying to define Ireland or find its essence in any way. They're just, you know, the kinds of stories I've written all my life. Uh, uh, they are agglomerations of things that have, that I've noticed and that have interested me and that um, and that go together to make a story that could actually be said anywhere. It could be said in um, Latvia. It could be said someplace far away from Ireland. Um, for me, uh, the place that a story occurs um, is really just the background against which what the principles do in the foreground uh, is valuable to make what the principles do plausible. So, uh, for me, even though Eudora, my great pal and my neighbor in Mississippi, said place is everything, for me, place is really rather a subordinate matter, just usable to uh, make it plausible. And yet it's so incredibly vivid and textured in your work. I mean, that's well, one of the great things your stories do is transport <clears throat> us to places. But, you know, Paula, it's all words. It's all words. So I'm not, I'm not uh, delivering places to the page. Uh, places don't need to be delivered to the page. I'm just using language that I have and that I have some facility with to, to create some illusion that the reader can participate in so that I can make what characters do all all the more persuasive and useful to the reader. Now, you mentioned Eudora Welty in your acknowledgments in the book, but you also mentioned another really brilliant American short story writer, James Salter. You acknowledge yes. him as both a friend and an inspiration. I don't think James Salter is as well-known as he might be, but particularly here. I wonder if you would talk about him a little bit and how he was an inspiration for you. Well, Jim was never as famous as he should have been. Uh, And I think in part that's because he wasn't interested in being famous. Um, He was interested in (laughs) writing only as much as he felt he wanted to and uh, writing for the movies also. He wrote a lot for the movies. And so his life, although it was a, it was a glistening life of literary accomplishment. It wasn't one of those sort of typical American lives of my generation. He was in his 90s when he died, so he's a generation older than I am. Um, it, it was a much more varied life from, say, the life that I've lived, which has been a life trying all the time to find find a way to write a story or try to write a novel. Jim, Jim was kind of a bon vivant. Uh, he was living all over the world and doing all kinds of things and making movies and writing movies and and in a way that probably got in the way of him becoming more renowned in his lifetime anyway, than he did become. Um, 
Although I think we always thought about Jim that he was a writer's writer, which on the one hand means you don't make any money. But on the other hand, it, it means that he was a person whom all of us emulated and, and respected, particularly just on the level of the sentence. He was probably the most pristine sentence writer of anybody I've ever known in my life, including Eudora. It's funny that you refer to him as a writer's writer. We had uh, Deborah Eisenberg on last week, who I, I know you you know well, and uh, yes, I do. She was the, one of the first writers we had in our Writers Writers series at Tulane, and the last writer we had in that series was, in fact, James Salter. It was unfortunately just after I left, so I missed him. But he's absolutely one of my one of my favorite writers. Now, to go to your stories, I'm sorry to Deb as well. By the way, let's, I don't want to skip over Deborah. Deborah Deborah is in Deborah is in a class of her own, really, as a story writer. She's just exquisite. No, oh, absolutely. Um, now, much of your life and your writing, as we were talking about, has taken you away from Mississippi. But in the story Displaced and Sorry for Your Trouble, you return there. And I know you're not an autobiographical writer, but your main character here, living in Jackson, 16-year-old, who's just lost his father as you lost yours, that has some resonance. And I wondered, what was it like for you writing that story to return to Jackson and, and the past in your imagination? Well, I go to Jackson all the time in my actual life. <clears throat> and I, I'm one of those Southerners who actually does get to go home again. And I've always done so. And it was never a hardship. I was always happy to be there and, ha and happily accepted by my friends. I, I talked to my high school classmates probably every day. So, and, and that's a long time ago. So, so going back to Jackson in a story was something I had never done, but it wasn't difficult. I mean, there's nothing difficult about writing stories, nothing difficult about writing novels. Um, it was just what I chose to do. And it was um, easy with the autobiographical aspects of this story to kind of bend them and mold them and make them be something other than autobiography. I mean, you're, you're right about that story, Displaced. It, it has some autobiographical elements, um, but, uh, you know, good is what I would say because it gives me more to write about. Absolutely, and it's a fantastic story. Rich, I believe you are going to read an excerpt from it, too, and it seems like this is a good time for you to do that. Would you, would you mind reading us? I'll be glad beginning? to. Yes. I'll just read from the beginning, because if you can't make the beginning of your story make sense, you're in trouble. Displaced. When your father dies and you are only 16, many things change. School life changes. You are now the boy whose father is missing. People feel sorry for you, but they also devalue you, even resent you for what you're not sure. The air around you is different. Once that air contained you fully, but now an, open, an opening's cut, which feels frightening, yet not so frightening. And there is your mother and her loss to feel, at least to step into while you manage those very sensations, fear, and others, opportunity, and always there is the fact of your father, whom you love or loved, and whose life has quickly become only about its end, much of the rest quickly fading. So you are alone in a way that is so many-sided, there is not a word for it. Attempts to find the word leave you fusion is not altogether unwanted or unliked. Try to find the word. 
It is not necessary to talk much about my parents. My father was a country boy from near Galena, Kansas, large and handsome and good-natured. My mother was a skeptical, ambitious town girl from Kankakee, Illinois, that met in the club car of a Rock Island passenger train between St. Louis and Kansas City, where my father was headed to take a job. It was 1943. Neither of them could have said if they had a care in the world or anything they weren't willing to lose that they were far from perfect for each other and would never have married if my mother hadn't gotten pregnant. I don't blame them for that. But if he had merely lived longer, she could have divorced him. I could have gone to military school, which was my wish. Things would have turned out other than they did. No matter how patented life's course seems when you are leading it day to day, everything could always have been much different. Across the street from our house in Jackson, we had not yet moved into the duplex, which lack of money would soon make necessary. An older residence had been converted into a rooming house in front of which was a wooden sign with a phone number, dial 33377, nothing more. My mother, in her strange, incomplete grief, disapproved of this house, disapproved of even the sign, the dial house, she called it, with a kind of disgust. People who lived there were transients, she said. Transient was a designation that meant undesirable to her. It meant weakness, a failing that could corrupt you, and corruption was the force in nature she now feared. My father had protected her from that, even feeling about him as she did. But being alone now in this small southern capital, a place where he brought us and where we knew no one yet couldn't for the moment find a way to leave, subjected us, she felt, in every sort of pitfall and danger that could ruin us and make our chances at restoring life vanish before they could be grasped. Thank you very much. That's pretty autobiographical. It's fantastic. That line, though, there's a line that you read there, um, things would have turned out other than they did, seems to me yeah. to be a current that flows through many of the stories in this collection. Well, I mean, I, I just, you know, if I have a worldview, <laughs> that's my worldview, that everything the way it turns out could have turned out differently. And um, that that has in its little core a lot of drama. I mean, you, know, you, can, you can think that things always should turn out well for you, or you can think that you're fated. There are all kinds of ways, religious, philosophical, to and to describe one's relationship to what's going to happen. My relationship to what's going to happen is it could be different. Your collection opens with the, the marvelous story, Nothing to Declare, in a hotel. In fact, the Monteleone Hotel, where Truman Capote yeah. was claimed to have been born. Though of course, he was born at a hospital down the road. Um, <laughs> which is a real New Orleans story, isn't it? Claiming it's to a real New Orleans know. place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, your Irish story, A Free Day, also has its at its heart a liaison in an airport hotel. And yeah. I know your grandparents ran a big hotel in Little Rock, Arkansas, and you say growing up you saw a lot of stuff by hanging around in hotels. And I wondered if hotels as a, as a, as a setting, a place of transience and meetings, still proves irresistible to you. To me, absolutely. Also, you know, as we were talking earlier, my father was a traveling salesman. And in those times when I would go with him on his sales route, which covered seven states in the South, um, 
we always stayed in hotels. We were staying in hotels all the time. Probably I've spent more time in hotels than I've spent anywhere else in my life. So it's both a natural place for me to be and for me to set human events. But it is also, it, it has that little sexiness about it. It's, it's got that little sense of the unknown about it. You know, hotels are where people go and rent rooms when they don't want someone to see them. And so um, that, that always for me has been um, how I looked at them. I mean, my, my grandfather was a, my, my grandfather was a sort of a, a rounder in a way, uh, but, a, but a smart guy. And when I was growing up there, part of my education was he felt that I should see all of the things that go on in all of those rooms where people go when they don't want someone to see them. And so I saw suicides. I saw a lot of people in the room with the wrong person. I saw a lot of people doing things that they shouldn't be doing and being tossed out. So uh, my grandfather would put a pistol in his belt and go up to these rooms in the middle of the night and he'd take me with him when I was 11 years old. So it's, it's no wonder, eh? <laughs> Um, when you were first writing stories, you said you were under the influence of Donald Barthelme, Robert Coover, yeah. William Gass, yes. but you said your instincts weren't particularly well served by their narrative practices and conceits. And I was taken by the fact that your wife, Christina, who is very beautiful and just off camera right now, um, gave you in the late 60s, and maybe it was her first ever book present to you, The Collected Stories of Peter Taylor, a much admired yeah. short story writer from Tennessee. And I wondered... For someone who, like you, you say you go home a lot to the South, you back in Jackson and New Orleans very regularly, but I wondered if stories by someone like Peter Taylor or by Eudora Welty, um, when you were first reading them as a writer, did they offer you a way forward in your own work or, or were they something to react against? They were never anything to react against. Um, they offered me, to use your phrase, a, a way forward in my work. I mean, <clears throat> I, I read those stories, Eudora's stories and Peter's stories and John Cheever's stories and lots of stories from O'Connor. And I thought to myself, Christ Almighty, I said, wouldn't it be great to write a story that made a reader feel the way these stories make me feel? Uh, it, it seemed completely enticing. <clears throat> But it was also true that when I was reading those guys, and they, they were all, these were all men we're talking about now, Don Barthelmey and uh, <clears throat> Mr. Gass and all those people, I, I, I was enticed by those stories. And I was particularly enticed by the aspect of those stories, which was not uh, representative in the way that O'Connor's stories and Ghidorah's stories were representative. I mean, particularly Don Barthelmey, <clears throat> he, he was interested in, the aspect of prose, which drew one's attention, not so much to the story, but to the, to, but to the non, I guess you would say, non-cognitive aspects of, of story writing. How a word looked on the page, how a word sounded in your ear, how many syllables it had, uh, the, uh, to the simple wordness of all kinds of utterances. And I was really drawn to that. I, I, I was pleased but to read those stories. It was just that when I tried to do it, I couldn't do it very well. So to the extent that they were models for me, they weren't, they weren't complete models for me. I took from them what I could, but I finally had to scuttle back under the, under the wing of those writers whom we were talking about before and write stories so that when I said tree and you looked out the window and you saw a tree, you knew that's what I meant. The one thing about your prose style, as you know, and, and reviewers always mention it, is your precision with language and your imagination with it. Well, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a 
there, there's a line of gases, which I, which I love, which is in his wonderful story, a uh, wonderful book called Fiction and the Figures of Life. And, and he basically says that in, in any piece of fiction, which is to say a story or even a sentence, nothing necessarily follows anything and anything may follow anything. And, and for me in constructing sentences, I'm, I, I'm, I'm constructing sentences in a, in a more mosaical way than I am in a linear way. So it's easy for me to put together surprising relationships between words because that's how I see sentences as being, not as, not as predigested groupings of words. The I'm making this cliche. I'm making this boring. I know I am. No, no, no. I mean, Martin Amos talks about writing as the war against cliche, coming up with something fresh and new, and that's absolutely your work, isn't it? Richard, well, Richard you, we, have to, we have to move on. I'm really sorry, but please don't go away because okay. I'll bring you back Thanks. at the end of the session. We'll talk some more. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Um, our next writer today is Amy McDade, a talented writer from Auckland of Rarotongan and Pakeha descent. Her tremendous debut novel, Fake Baby, is published by Penguin this week. Amy wrote the first draft of this novel for the Master of Creative Writing program at the University of Auckland, where she won the Sir James Wallace Prize while continuing her career as a neonatal intensive care nurse at Starship Hospital. Now, I can't pretend any neutrality here with Amy as I have a quote on the cover of the book declaring it a darkly funny satire that's both moving and wise. It's the story of three people on the edge over nine days in contemporary Auckland, dealing with the complexities of family relationships, real lives and old ghosts. I'm delighted that Amy was invited to take part in the Auckland Writers' Festival this year and that this is her first interview about the novel. Kia ora, Miss Amy, and welcome. Hi, Paula. Thank you so much for having me, my first interview. Well... <laughs> Let's get started with it. Now, you have three compelling point of view characters in this novel, each quite different. And I wondered if you took us through each of them and their roles in the book. Okay. So uh, the first character that the reader meets is Stephen. So Stephen is 65 years old and it becomes apparent quite quickly that he's, he's really distressed. We meet him in Waikamati Cemetery here in West Auckland and he's just visited his father's grave. And then he actually moves on and he actually starts to, to masturbate, of all things. And then he ends up travelling onto Green Bay Beach and he starts to believe that if he throws himself into the Minico Harbour, he can free the world of his dead father's evil spirit. But uh, he is apprehended before he can do so and he's admitted into a psychiatric institution. So that is uh, Stephen. And the second character uh, the reader meets is Janvi. So Janvi is in her mid-30s and her firstborn son, Jonathan, uh, has died six months earlier. And she is obviously still grieving. She will, she will grieve for the rest of her life, of course. But the people around her are not necessarily the most supportive of her Husband has shut down and doesn't want to talk about it. And her mother feels that it's been six months, it's time for her to just have another baby and move on. But as the reader will find out, that's not quite so easy. And so Janvi heads out one day, she's out for a walk, she wanders into a lingerie shop 
and she sees this beautiful doll and it's extremely lifelike and it belongs to the lingerie shop owner and Janvi nicks it. She picks it up and she runs out the door. She takes it back home. She feels it might help to bond her and her husband, but her husband hates it and demands she returns it. But uh, of course he doesn't know she's actually stolen it. So she, she hides it in her closet. And then the third character that the, the reader meets is uh, Lucas. So Lucas is a pharmacist. He's incredibly socially awkward. He's just had his 40th birthday. His employees have forgotten it. They haven't made him a cake and he really likes cake. So that's very disappointing. And his Tinder date's not been responding to his uh, messages. And then to top his day off, uh, his favorite customer, uh, comes in very unwell and he realizes that he's made quite a terrible error in her medication which was resulted in her being so sick. An ambulance has to come and collect Edith and uh, Lucas unfortunately he actually ends up concealing the error rather than being straight up about it. So these three characters, John B, Lucas and Stephen, their lives kind of loosely intersect over nine days, yes, like you mentioned, Paula, in contemporary Auckland. There are a few crossover characters, there are a few crossover themes. Um, but yeah, that's that's them. That's my lovely three. It's fantastic. I mean, Lucas, Janvi and Stephen are all battling demons in a way or moral dilemmas. And as you say, they intersect with each other, but also crucially the medical establishment. Each has a hospital ward encounter either in their past or their present. And given your medical training, we're, we're health institutions and there's sometimes surreal complexities and inevitable points of connection in your novel. Yes, they, they, they certainly are. I, I think when I, um, when I decided to utilise the medical component, it was very much utilising what I knew. So the pharmacy, I did actually work in a pharmacy in my early 20s as a pharmacy assistant and then, of course, I, I drew in the newborn intensive care. But the medical stuff, or particularly with Janvi anyway, it's I, it's a little bit in, in the background. I mean, the baby died six months earlier, but we kind of flick back and forth to to newborn intensive care unit and her memories of, of the nine days that her son was alive. Now, we're keen these days to label people or diagnose them. And I wondered what's your feeling about the notion of eccentricity because there's, that's one of the notions at play in the novel, is it not? Yes, it is actually. And I've, I found it quite interesting. I, I intentionally didn't diagnose or give Stephen a, a diagnosis. First of all, it wouldn't have been true to his point of view. He doesn't wander around thinking, I have, I have this and this is what the, the doctors have, have labelled me as. Uh, and he's very much his own self. Um, Lucas as well, I mean, he's he's just different. Um, people, again, have said to me, oh, is he, is he, uh, has he got Asperger's or is he this or is he that? But I never saw him as that. It was just, I just had the slow process of, of getting to know him. And yes, he's, he's perhaps, some people will view him as a little bit different than others, but... I guess I was so much in his head that to me he was he was just Lucas and and I, I loved him for all his little differences and it's the same as as Jambi. People said to me, "Isn't it isn't it weird that she she stole a doll and she's treating it like a baby?" But 
for me that was and yes it's eccentric but I mean she's lost her lost her child I mean I don't know what I would do I would I might be surrounding myself with a thousand dogs <laughs> now you mentioned your opening scene which is quite an audacious one you even used um, a quite specific description of what happens in it which I was not planning to do but that's good <laughs> I mean you could say Stephen's the most eccentric of your characters and I think it's a it's a, a big beginning because it's actually very funny even, you know, he ends up sprinting away from the police with whom he has many encounters in the book. But I wondered if you ever, in the process of writing the book, felt that you were losing your nerve about presenting the comedy as well, as well as the emotion and the humanity of your story. Losing the nerve. Um, I'm not sure. I just I just wrote forward, to be honest. Um, there were times when I thought, yes, is, is this working? Have I, have I pushed this humour too far? Uh, are people even going to find it funny? I, I don't know if you, well, everyone won't find it funny. We all have um, very different senses of humour. My, my mum said to me after she read it, Amy, it's got the C-O-C-K word in it and I can't give it to my, to my neighbour now. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, just, I just wrote forward with it, I think, and I didn't give it too much thought at the time because I was just trying to get so much in the character's head. And I think it's, the thing with humour is, I mean, it's just often just the absurdity of things, isn't it? Like, um, it's right there in front of us. It's whether we, we notice it or not. I'm really glad you didn't overthink it. You know, I'm always opposed to that. Amy, would you give us a reading, please, from the novel? Yes. So I'm going to read here from a Lucas segment. Uh, so this occurs after the era happens in the pharmacy. He's back at home and... Just to give a little bit more background, uh, Edith, yes, is the, is the customer who has unwell. Margaret is an ex-girlfriend and Ayla is his uh, shop assistant. Unfortunately, his mother was coming for dinner tomorrow, only a day late this year. One happy year she forgot completely. The week following a birthday was a good time to reflect and set goals and his mother always managed to disrupt the process. He would visit Edith Wednesday evening, try to look her in the face, take in some flowers and a card. He tipped his baked beans into the bin. Social media was best avoided after a bad day, everyone knew that. He powered up his laptop, opened Facebook and discovered he had several happy birthday messages. There were straight happy birthday Lucases from two old university classmates and a man called Rev Toffel Barmer. Uh, hope you had a good day, Lucas, from his auntie. And a happy birthday to a nice guy, I hope you were spoiled, from Alison, a retired pharmacy sales rep. An old high school acquaintance had typed HBL, which took Lucas a moment to work out. Imagine not even bothering to type the words. But he'd never liked him anyway. He'd only accepted the friend request because it would be rude not to. Six messages all up. Nothing from his employees and nothing from Margaret. But that didn't matter. They had a lot of friends and birthdays to remember. He shouldn't take it personally. His own birthday was such a small blip in the scheme of things. He checked Ayla's page to make sure she hadn't drawn unnecessary attention to the pharmacy. Her ambulance post now had 225 likes and her mother had written, Ayla, can you please get in touch with me? Which had 15 likes. Ayla had not yet responded to any of the messages. He would talk to her tomorrow and initiate a discussion on the Privacy Act. 
In fact, a refresher for all the staff wouldn't go amiss. They enjoyed teaching sessions. He scrolled through his newsfeed. Two of his friends were holidaying on tropical islands. Everyone had scored 100% in general knowledge, creativity and emotional intelligence quizzes. Children smiled out from car seats, cardboard boxes, high chairs. A news link advised him about a spark and gonorrhea cases linked to antibiotic resistance. Along the side of his feed were several advertisements for dating websites featuring happy couples clasping each other's waists. The internet powers knew what he was up to. They followed his searches and monitored the pages he clicked on. Margaret's page. He couldn't help himself, it was like a nervous tick. Margaret Bulldog, friends tick, following tick, large cover photo of a sunset over Paris. She'd never even been to Paris. What was she trying to say? What did it mean? When they were together, she'd often spoken in metaphors and symbols and it had been an endless source of confusion for him. Sunsets, city of romance. Perhaps she was hinting to him about the end of their relationship. Perhaps she was missing him. If the world were a safer place, he'd go to Paris. French women were slimmer than New Zealand women. They also dressed better according to a front page article in the New Zealand Herald. New Zealand's track suited polar fleece double X chromosome had not been happy with that article and it had sparked an entertaining sequence of counter articles. Lucas leaned in closer to the screen. The Paris streets were empty. A solitary bird crossed the sky. What an empty looking city. You would assume such a big city would be busier in the evening. Could it be a sunrise? He put sunrise symbol into Google. As a cemetery symbol, the sun represents eternal life as well as the eternal light of heaven. When you think of it as a sunset, it symbolizes the end of our earthly life. On the other hand, as a sunrise, it also reminds us of the promise of new beginnings in the afterlife. New beginnings? A sharp pain hit the center of his chest. Had Margaret met someone else? He closed down the page. How was it his business anyway? He had bigger things to worry about. And if he thought about it, she had some disturbing habits. She'd leave threads of dental floss the length of his arm on the bathroom vanity and would trim her six month long toenails on his pillow. He clicked on the spider icon in the top right hand corner of the screen and eight rows of cards popped up. Spider solitaire. He played four games and lost every one. But it was a complex game that required more skill than most would expect. He played another game and lost again. 40 years old today, the halfway mark if he was lucky, and already his mental function was on the decline. What if he made another error? What if he killed someone? To think that the biggest thing on his mind 12 hours ago was a cake. Thank you very much for that reading. Um, we haven't got much time left for a little chat, but I, I wanted to ask you about the, the fake baby of the title that Jean B carries around. Now, these things really exist, don't they? Um, I, yes. I believe you've come across one somewhere. The, yes, they, they do exist. Uh, the one in the novel is a probably worth about $10,000, extremely realistic, made of silicone. Uh, they're mostly made in the States. I think they're, they're quite hard to access here. I actually tried to to buy a cheaper version <laughs> and I, I we actually looked at a second-hand one and it was interesting chatting to the owner. She was she was really lovely and she had actually lost a baby and had bought 
the stole. So it's it's not it's not an entirely unusual concept. Now, why were you going to buy it though? Uh, I could have had it in the interview with me, you know, propped it up. With <laughs> <laughs> Some friends told me it was a bit gimmicky, so I decided against it. <laughs> I do have to tell you, I went to a party once in Louisiana, in central Louisiana, where someone was carrying around a fake baby. So, oh, really? Yeah. But was it's it really realistic? That's just Louisiana. Everyone took it in their stride, I would have to say. <laughs> um, Amy, it's been wonderful talking to you. Please don't go away. Um, I'll right. ask you back at the end with Richard to join our conversation. Kia ora, and thank you very much. Now, our third guest today is Yasmin Khan a British food writer and broadcaster, as well as a human rights campaigner. Her first book, The Saffron Tales, Recipes and Stories from the Persian Kitchen, was published in 2016 and appeared on numerous best of lists around the world. That book celebrated the stories from and recipes from her mother's birthplace of Iran, where Yasmin herself spent part of her childhood. Her new book, Zaitun, Recipes and Stories from the Palestinian Kitchen, may explore a smaller physical area, but it's equally rich in stories, history, and insights into the way people with the national and cultural identity of Palestine, Palestine live and eat. This is also a book of stunning photography and delicious recipes. I mentioned uh, to someone that I've cooked two of the recipes already and I cannot wait to try more. So I will try to say, Alan Hua Salan, Yasmin, welcome. Thank you. It's so great to be here. I'm um, I'm doing my best to perk myself up at, at ten to eleven on a on a Saturday night. I think this is officially the latest book book event I've ever done. But it's it's yeah, it's great to take part and wonderful to listen to Richard and Amy. And I actually haven't read either. Well, obviously Amy's this is her first book, but I'm really looking. Um, you really inspired me to go out and buy your books and and read them. So thanks for your contributions too. Fantastic. And Yasmin, usually when we talk to people in the UK, they pretend to be drinking some sort of herbal tea. But have you have you got wine on the go or no? I don't. I actually I actually had a gin and tonic earlier, but I'm just on the just on the water now. Well, I'm glad to hear that so that we can have a, a coherent interview. Now, let's get to your book because it is a wonderful, very rich book and there's quite a lot to discuss. I mean, as you say in the introduction, there is no country at present called Palestine and many Palestinians live elsewhere in Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, around the world. So where uh, did you seek out the Palestinian kitchen for this book? Yeah, I mean, um, just to clarify, when I, when I say kind of in the book there is no no country, uh, what I mean by that is that there's, there's no kind of internationally um, recognised borders. Um, but actually, um, you know, for many Palestinians, the, the area that currently exists within kind of the West Bank and Gaza and, and, and where Israel currently is obviously represents to them Palestine. Um, but still, you know, even by a slightly, you know, difficult beginning introduction, you can tell that this is an area, obviously, that, you know, where issues around around borders are hugely contested. Um, so for, for the purposes of the book, um, I actually chose to explore the Palestinian kitchen as exists within the, I guess, what used to be British Mandate Palestine. Uh, so around, so looking at Gaza, the West Bank, and um, modern-day Israel, um, because there are, you know, around a million Palestinians that live within Israel uh, and all throughout kind of the country. So uh, their their recipes and their stories are also an integral part of the, the Palestinian story. And the word Zaitun in the title means olive, and I wonder 
at the heart of Palestinian cooking and the book. Yeah, it's an interesting one, book titles, isn't it? Because I'm, I'm in the process of trying to come up with my third book title. The book is almost finished and I can't quite get it still. But with Zaytun, before I'd written a word, I knew I wanted to call the book that. Uh, so Zaytun means olive in, in Arabic, but also Farsi and, and Turkish. Um, and for, for Palestinians throughout kind of Palestinian history, the olive tree has represented Palestinians' connection to the land. Uh, the roots of the olive tree representing kind of the, the, the deep um, steadfastness of Palestinians um, in, 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 in their connection to, to their home. And also when olive trees are uprooted, as we're kind of increasingly seeing, I think last year the UN reported that there was an increase in kind of Israeli settlers uprooting Palestinian uh, olive trees um, throughout the West Bank. When they're uprooted, olive trees represent Palestinian displacement. And, and you know, some of the most famous Palestinian poets like Mahmoud Darish um, have written extensively about the olive tree. Um, and of course, um, you know, the olive branch is a, is a huge symbol of peace. And uh, then, you know, just from a plain culinary point of view, um, you, olives and olive oil are just the, the, the bedrock of Palestinian cook cooking. You know, meals often have a small bowl of olives there, um, whether it's for breakfast, lunch or dinner. Um, so for all of those reasons, it just felt that, and Zaytun was, was, was the title of the book. I'm just really resisting the urge to see. I wish someone could help me with my current title because I am I am flummoxed, you know. <laughs> Which where is it? Where is it set? Your new book. Maybe we'll come up with something for you. Yeah, in the Eastern Mediterranean, so Greece, Turkey, and Cyprus. So All right. Like so Richard and Amy will be thinking uh, quickly on this. So by the end of this episode, mm -hmm. I promise you, a word will come forward. Now, your book has been described as much as travelogue as cookbook, but I don't think that's quite true because you write about the places you visit and the people you meet, but you're also talking about war, checkpoints, occupied land, water shortages. When you write about Bethlehem, a really interesting essay, short essay in the book, you write about the separation wall and the refugee camp that's been there since 1948. When you cook with a singer, Rim Talhami, she says she can't be sentimental about Jerusalem living there will mythologize it in the way an outsider can and I wondered is this part of your intention in the book to sh explore darkness as well as light? Well that that is the sum of the human experience isn't it you know uh, we we have we have we have darkness we have light we have hope we have joy I mean Covid is a perfect example I mean within one day we go through kind of fear and anxiety and stress and, and reflection and patience and um, magnanimity and, and gratefulness, you know, we want to, you know, the, the, the COVID rollercoaster also reflects that, I think. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that a lot of, um, I think modern, you know, there's a, there's a lot of kind of modern food writing that I think tends to erase the background story of, of, of what food is telling us. You know, it just becomes about the celebrating the beauty on the plate. Whereas actually, when you, when you look at a plate, it can tell you so much more about a place. You know, by examining the food of a country, you're actually looking at its history, you're looking at its geography, its climate, its trade relations, um, how its economy is functioning, maybe its gender relations. Like, there's so much to unpick about a place if you want to look at it through the culinary lens. And I think, you know, my, I was driven to kind of, I guess, start this theme for my books 
Um, out of a real motivation to try and challenge stereotypes of the Middle East uh, region, which, you know, I think we can all agree is, is seen through a very narrow political lens of its governments. And I always say when I'm in the States, I'm like, you know, imagine if all people ever thought of the US was, was you know, the Donald Trump administration. You know, that does not reflect the diversity that exists within the US or the, the difference of opinion or the difference of lives. Yet for the Middle East, we just tend to view them through, through you know, they're often very disappointing um, political administrations. So I wanted to use something um, to kind of break through that. And food felt like a really good way to connect um, people insofar as food is such a neutralizer, you know, and it's something that we can all relate to. These kind of very broad terms. But, you know, I when I was doing my human rights work, which I did for about a decade before I started doing food writing, um, the, the, a line really stuck with me that um, I actually then included in the opening of Zaytun, that, um, you know, an enemy is just a person whose story you haven't heard yet. And I, I opened Zaytun with that, and that very much, I think, is the mission of my work, because I think if, you know, if there's one thing I can do to kind of break down stereotypes, you know, between, you know, how we see people in the Middle East and really trying to humanise people there through something, you know, as accessible as food, then, then hopefully... And I've, and I've done something small to challenge perceptions. And, you know, having worked in the human rights field for many years, I knew that actually the first step before we even start getting to changing legislations is, is building empathy for people that we don't, you know, necessarily know anything about. So food's, food's a good starting point for that. And you talk about um, three quite different cuisines or, or differing cuisines um, within the Palestinian kitchen, the Galilee the West Bank and Gaza, and of course you could not visit Gaza. Um, and would you would you mind giving your reading now? Because you're going to read from that part of the book, and it'll be very interesting, I think, to hear and discuss. Yeah. Um, so I couldn't visit Gaza physically um, because it has, for the last twelve years now, been under a blockade, um, blockaded by sea and land and air. Um, by the Israeli authorities. And at the moment, over well, around 2 million people live on a very small bit of land that's just um, 26 miles long and around 5 to 6 miles wide. So I did my interviews whilst I was travelling around the region. I did my interviews with people in Gaza over Skype. And I'm going to read you a short excerpt from one of my interviews. So let's begin. So Omar is speaking to me via Skype from Gaza City giving me the lowdown on his favorite Palestinian dishes and how to prepare them. Like many others in the world, spending time in the kitchen is how Omar relaxes. And he finds a meditative quality in cooking, a vehicle through he can escape the everyday challenges of life in Gaza. But even in the kitchen, Omar can't escape his concerns. There's a spike in cancer rates that no one talks about, he tells me, sighing heavily. Our land is filled with the remnants of tons of artillery and missiles and bombs. How do you think that's affecting the soil? In 2009, Israel used white phosphorus against Gazans during Operation Kastled, and Omar fears the ongoing damage from these chemical weapons is affecting Gaza's produce. No matter how much you clean the vegetables, you always wonder, is this really clean? Or is this carrot gonna give me cancer? Nonetheless, many of Omar's fondest memories revolve around food, and in particular, the time that he would spend in his grandmother's kitchen, a place where he'd seek solace at the end of his school day, 
sampling her food as she was cooking. I was in my grandmother's kitchen the first time I remember Gaza being bombed, he told me. I was a kid and I remember hearing the helicopters above us. It was the first time I'd heard such a roar and it was deafening. I didn't know what was happening. I started panicking and I kept telling my grandmother, we need to leave, we need to leave the kitchen. And then we started hearing all of these explosions around us. Omar paused for a moment and I realized that I was holding my breath. I exhaled. But you know what, he continued. My grandmother did not flinch. She said, I'm cooking. And if I stop now, everything will be ruined. I'm not going anywhere. She was making a dish where she cooked yogurt and cornstarch, a dish that requires stirring the whole time, otherwise it will burn and separate. And she was determined that she had started cooking and she wanted to finish it. That was the first time I realized that fear doesn't have to control us. It was this realization that Omar believes makes people in Gaza so resilient. People in Gaza really love life, he told me. We don't take life for granted. If there is darkness, we manage to find some light. If there is ugliness, we manage to find some beauty. If there is despair, we find or create hope. It is something that we have developed like a skill. This is the image of Gaza that I would like people to know about, he continued. It's not just a place of death and destruction and bombs and dying and Hamas and Fatah and Israel and war and borders. We're not just that. We're two million people, just humans, like everyone else in the world, waking up to life every day and looking for the chance to be happy. Thank you very much, Yasmin. Now, you en- encounter much generosity from the locals you, you talk with and meet with, but there's also pushback from some people, is there not? Because you're writing about food culture in such a conflict-torn place, and people are saying, well, everyone's here always documenting our lives, but meanwhile, no change happens. And how did this challenge you with how you wrote the book and what you included? So, I, yeah, it was really interesting. So, you know, I think there's, there is a tendency when journalists or travel writers go off around the world, um, you know, to present their end results of being, you know, kind of effortless, you know, like I just walked into this town and so-and-so invited me to lunch. And actually it's, it's really hard and you are working all the time to be sensitive, to be aware of the people that you're wanting to talk to and, and why people should even want to speak to you. And I, I did get, you know, the overwhelming response um, for all, all three of my books, actually, when I talk to people about what I'm doing has been, has been positive. But I decided to, yeah, kind of also put in the criticisms because I think, well, you know, I'm, I'm confident enough in my work and I think it's an important issue. So there's this one woman in Bethlehem who says something to me that really, I mean, it really, I even thinking about it now, I get a bit of a kind of knock to the heart. So, you know, I kind of was talking to her about what I was doing and she turned around to me and she said, well, you know, we're not clowns in a circus for you to come and interview and research and then write a book and make your name off it. And um, 
And she actually said, I mean, obviously not knowing how much authors earn, but she was just like, you know, when you're kind of making your millions off, off our suffering, then we'll still be here. Nothing will have changed. And, um, and she was right in many ways, you know, um, but also as, as I then discussed with her and I didn't kind of put this in the book so much, but it's, 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 you know, I, and I wanted to put that in because I think it's important to also realize that is how a lot of people feel, especially in conflict zones, especially in places like Israel and Palestine, where, you know, there has, this has been a, a situation that's been causing much, you know, hurt for many people for decades. Um, but uh, my counteract to that is that I think that travel writing has and always will be about, um, you know, ordinary people going to places, sharing their experience. And, and as an outsider, I think that, especially in a place like Israel and Palestine, the role of the outsider can be quite useful in documenting what is going on um, and offering, a, 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 I guess, a voice that is impartial within that. So, so yeah, it was, it was confronting, but I really wanted to write about it because I think as, as we're kind of developing our understanding of what, what thoughtful and sensitive travel writing looks like, it's really important, I think, for all travel writers to think about that, you know, what, what is the impact and, and what is the legacy of, of our work? And, I mean, you've said you're a cook, not a cultural anthropologist or culinary anthropologist, rather. And I wonder what implications that has for, for Zaytun and your other book. Sorry, what was the question? So not being a culinary anthropologist, what do you mean by when you say I'm not a culinary anthropologist? What are the implications then for the books you're writing? I think I do tend to describe myself as one. Did I not? No, you said you weren't. You said you were a home cook. I thought it was because you were focusing not on just about traditions, but also about how people actually live and eat and cook now with what's available to them. But maybe I've misread that. Yeah. Um, it's funny, isn't it? Kind of three years on from that research trip, I think I probably would call myself a culinary anthropologist. But um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I've been very clear throughout, you know, I come from a, a background of working, you know, for for many years on, on human rights in the Middle East. It's kind of been a big passion of mine to be able to talk about those issues in the most accessible way. Um so, yeah, I'm not sure I don't know how to answer that question. Uh, That's all right. Well, let me ask you one more before we yeah. bring this back. It was a really interesting conversation you had with a woman you cooked with in Nazareth, and she said to you, knowing how to cook is power. And I wondered what you thought she meant by that. Yeah. Um, let's have a think. I think that as we are seeing in the current crisis, um, there, you know, being we, and I have to say, different countries in the world probably like relate to this differently. But I think it's incredibly important and powerful to take ownership over um, not only how our food systems are run, making sure they're run in an equitable way, both for producers and and in an environmentally sound way. But I also think that um, by having the domain of of, of, I don't know, by taking over and, and celebrating food as something that both, you know, can bring people together, that can kind of nourish on many levels, both on a community level and on a on a soul level, then, you know, one of the, the brightest 
aspects of this very difficult period we're in at the moment has been seeing all over social media people cooking more you know I was seeing just today that one of my friends was posting about how she was growing um, lettuce from like you know you can, I didn't know you could even do this this is something that's happening on Instagram these days that people are kind of growing new bulbs of lettuce from kind of the ends of, of a lettuce bulb or you know you know a friend gave me some tomatoes that she was just you know potted in a plant so I think this you know we've, we've grown so far away from our food system and our um or certainly we have in the UK I, I don't know about New Zealand I imagine you're slightly better over in New Zealand the US you know is slightly further away sadly um but I think any any closer connection we can have to food growing or, or just cooking can is just a benefit for everyone well, everyone in New Zealand went crazy for cooking during lockdown, as you can imagine, and flour became the most difficult thing. Flour and yeast became the two most difficult things to buy in supermarkets to the point where we were buying sort of plastic bags of it with no packaging as though it was some kind of, you know, luxury item. It was very interesting that making bread became the thing that people felt they had to do. Yeah, so They won't find your book challenging at all. And I must um, tell our viewers to rest assured that the things in your store cupboard in the book uh, are, are quite widely available in New Zealand. Um, and I know because I've been driving around Auckland buying various things, Borgo wheat, Zata, it's available here. And uh, Zaytuna is an ideal book for family cooking and sharing. Kia ora, Yasmin. Thank you so much. Let us bring back Amy and Richard now. Hopefully our viewers can see them. I had been thinking about asking you a question about place, but Richard really saw that off in his answer, insisting that his stories could be set anywhere, which I, I don't think is true, but I don't want to squabble with him because he's Richard Ford. I mean, really. Now, I, but I wondered if we could talk a little bit about the times in which we live, because we're all writers living at a very unusual and difficult point in history. And recently, um, I just reread the, the Eudora Welty's famous short story, Where Is the Voice Coming From? in The New Yorker. She wrote it the day of the murder of Medgar Evers in 1963, the civil rights activist who also lived in Jackson, as she did and as Richard did. I mean, it's the city where he lived and died, where his murderers were initially acquitted. It's the city of that era, the Woolworths sit-in, which was one of the most famous or infamous incidents of the civil rights era. Now, obviously, we're in a very different historical moment now, but we're being confronted all around us with scenes of, of racism and brutality. And, I mean, you use the word apartheid. Uh, Yasmin talking about um, Israel and Palestine. Uh, are these spectres that will never go away? Uh, as Can we as writers do anything at all? Or is our job just to observe or to change minds and hearts. I mean, Yasmin, do you have feelings about this? Not unsurprising, I have very strong feelings about this. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, look, there's many different kinds of writing and I don't think it's kind of, you know, we all have different things that we want to do with our writing. Um, but I, you know, I, I kind of spoke a little bit earlier about the act of bearing witness and I think writing can do that Um very purposefully and and also for me about inspiring I think it's so easy at the moment um on so many levels to kind of feel very despondent and and fearful uh, about the state of the world and there's lots of things to be despondent and fearful and angry about um, but I think um one of the great things that all art can do and writing is just part of that is to you know writing you know they always say it, it part of writing is kind of 
help you understand yourself better, but also part of it is to help you understand the world better. And I think that there is there is a, a role, I think, for, for writers to try and inspire hope, to try and help people understand themselves better and understand the world better. So hopefully they can change it and understand that that change is possible. Um, because, yeah, I mean, I've spent all of today watching kind of a lot of the stuff that's been happening in the States. Nothing sadly new, incredibly you know, it, it kind of it makes it makes you know as a person of color, it makes my blood boil here in, in London. But but what makes my blood boil isn't actually just the the travesty of what happened to George Floyd, but just the, the historical context in which we're living in. But you know, history is littered littered with examples of you know the only constant we have is change. So we know that um, the current status quo won't last forever because it's unsustainable. And hopefully, writers can help shape whatever that future looks like. Mm-hmm. Now, Richard and Amy, you are both fiction writers, unlike Yasmin, who is a non-fiction writer. What is your take on this, Richard? Well, um, I think there aren't any rules for us. Um, one of the good things about imaginative writing is that nobody has any obligation but to do what they best can do. Um, for me, um, what I choose to do is to try to write stories and I was much affected by what Yasmin said that sometimes a person from away, from, from, from outside the perimeter can actually say something about what's going on in the perimeter, which can be quite useful. And there's, there's, there's a lot of evidence for that. But for me, it's, it's a value to try to write stories in which um, human beings who might be, seem, might be seen to be unalike are in fact more alike. And... And if there's any universality about literature at all, imaginative literature, it's, it's that we we are all God's creatures. And and um, even if we don't believe in the same God, and so for me, that's a, that's of paramount importance. Mm, absolutely. A- Amy, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, Richard and Yasmin have answered that so well. I think for, for me as a writer, it's about... It's about putting that light into the dark. I, I feel that's a really precious gift that, that I could I can put out there. Um, but, yes, I don't think I have much more to add to what they've said. They've, they've spoken so well. I, I do feel a, a, an obligation to, to represent humans honestly and completely. And I guess when we do that, then others can, can read and, and take lessons from their own lives. Absolutely. I mean, humanity, complexity, depth, empathy, it seems that those things are present in all of your work. Thank you so much for a a wonderful conversation today. Thank you so much to Richard Ford, Amy McDade and Yasmin Khan. It's been really lovely to talk to you. The time has sped by. Um, I need to thank everyone else, of course, who has also made this episode possible, especially the Auckland Writers' Festival team, Auckland Live and Copyright Licensing New Zealand. Kia ora also to the generous sponsors and partners listed on the festival's website. Thank you so much for your ongoing support. Uh, thank you to our audience. Remember, this episode can be viewed again at your leisure on the festival website and feel free to share it. The 2020 festival program is a superb reading guide for the rest of the year. And if you'd like a hard copy, contact the festival uh, through the website and they'll send you one. Now, please tune in next week when our guest will be writer and journalist Peter Stanford on his latest book, Angels, A Visible and Invisible History. Olivia Hayfield, who some of you may know as children's writer Sue Copsey, with her first novel for adults called Wife to Wife. And novelist Elizabeth Knox talking about the absolute book. 
See you same time, same place next week. Matewa.